Hello, back again. It's Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, and in this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Richard McIntosh, Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He's written a book, an undergraduate textbook for non-science majors, Understanding Cancer, an Introduction to the Biology, Medicine, and Societal Implications of this Disease. And let me tell you, he is the right person to have written this book. One, because he's made seminal contributions to our understanding of mitosis. For that, he was named an American Cancer Society research professor. Two, he can actually explain it. He is a great teacher. And when you listen to this, you'll understand why his students love him. Uh, Dr. McIntosh also had a very personal motivation for writing this book. He lost his son, Rob, a non-smoker, to lung cancer. And in this conversation with my colleague, Dr. Susanna Greer, he talks about his son's struggle with cancer, his new undergraduate textbook, Understanding Cancer, and why he wrote it for non-science majors. Good morning, Dick. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm excited to talk to a published author. Not every day that I get to do that with an ACS grantee. Well, it's my pleasure to speak with you. There's so many common interests that we can talk about. All right. Well, we're not going to have time to talk about all of them, but hopefully we're going to talk about the ones that are near and dear to your heart. Um, so I, I do want to start off with, let's, let's talk about this undergraduate textbook that you've written that's really kind of dialed in, I think, although it would be probably available and appropriate to anyone. You have produced material that is driven towards a non-scientific major, which I think is fantastic. The title of this textbook is Understanding Cancer, an Introduction to the Biology, Medicine, and Societal Implications of this Disease. So that's a big topic. Um, let's just start by, can you share with us why do you think it's so important that all of us, um, not just individuals who have scientific training, have an understanding of cancer? Well, I think there are many reasons. And the ones that come to my mind are one of the first and most important, I think, is overcoming fear. Because um, cancer is a word that elicits fear in the hearts of many people. And part of this is, of course, lack of knowledge. One is afraid of something you don't know about or understand. And so understanding cancer can help to remove that component of fear. Now, of course, cancer in its worst forms, where it is lethal and painful, is fearful indeed. But still, if you understand cancer, you're in a position to help support others and to tolerate such difficulties in yourself just by having a better understanding of what's happening. Another thing is that there are several ways in which one can minimize one's own risk of getting cancer, and those subjects are treated in the book. Um, another thing is that uh, a way in which you can minimize the impact of cancer is to have appropriate levels of screening for cancer and early treatment if anything is found. And if you understand why those issues are important, you're more likely to do them, even if they might be important. Uh, unpleasant or expensive or take you out of your way. So understanding cancer has real medical implications both for yourself and for your families and others you love. Uh, and now that's really interesting to me because we know how incredibly complex cancer is and 
it seems like what you're saying is that you not only have written a book that is accessible to anyone, but that it could be interesting and informing to anyone. So it sounds like what you're saying is that maybe we don't have to have an in-depth understanding of the biological principles of cancer to appreciate these things. Is that correct? I, I think that's right. I mean, of course, you want your oncologist to be extremely well informed about all of the intricacies that may be coming up as a result of your disease. But you, as simply a, a human individual who is concerned about your health or the health of someone you care about, um, you don't need a great deal of detail. For one thing, one can get from a book like mine or from web sources, because, of course, there's a tremendous amount of information on the web, uh, enough basic biology to understand what's going on when cancer emerges. Um, now, to do that, you need a certain amount of biology background. And the way in which I've structured the book, it begins with an introduction to cancer, which is just a straightforward read. And then there's a chapter on um, screening and diagnosis and other very medically oriented things that are intellectually straightforward, don't require much background. But to get into what cancer is, I have to go into the biology of what a cell is because cancer fundamentally is cells that have lost their control so that they don't behave in the best interests of the body as a whole. So how do cells control themselves normally and how do they lose control? For that, you need to understand a little cell biology a little biochemistry and molecular biology and a little genetics. And so there are two chapters in the book, chapters three and four, that try to give sufficient background expressed in a way that it is not taking you into the weeds of how complicated biology is, but giving you enough background that the essence of cancerous transformation of cells can be understood and the details then can be laid on later. And in fact, I employ a strategy that I call uh, description on a need-to-know basis. That is, rather <laughs> than giving the full complexity of something like the replication of a cell's DNA, I present it in a very simple way first and only bring up the complexities when they're relevant to a particular kind of cancer later on in the book. What a great strategy. I love that. So it sounds like you've written the book for individuals who are intellectually curious, but laid it out in such a way that you're not overwhelming with information, uh, but well, providing a really nice resource. Yeah, I mean, I, I've taught for 45 years at a university level, and I taught freshman biology for 20. So I have quite a lot of experience in trying to take people through material that is fundamentally complex, but express it in a way that's comprehensible. And I've tried to use every skill I had in making this book just what you described, something that is readable and interesting. So I think one of the unfortunate truths about cancer for many of us is that we come to a place of experiencing cancer, not from an intellectual space, but from an emotional one. So we've been personally impacted or affected by cancer, whether it's our own diagnosis or someone we loved. And I know that's your case. Um, I, I wonder, because I think it would help the audience to understand your frame of mind when you were writing the book, would you, would you be willing to share, I know you have a very personal motivation for writing this book, would you be willing to tell us a little about your son, Rob? I would indeed. I, I mean, it, it's a painful subject because he died of cancer at the age of 32, which was about 20 years ago. 
20 years is enough that I can speak about it without crying. But it's still a, a, a painful event in my life, and it was one that taught me a tremendous amount, both about myself and about this disease, cancer. Um, I had been a basic cancer researcher all my life until that time, and indeed ever since, working on the ways in which cells manage their chromosomes when they're going to divide. I mean, it's very fundamental work, but it's pertinent to developing anti-cancer drugs. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, rather than it's being a laboratory exercise for me, here was my son telephoning to say that he just had a chest x-ray and it turns out he's stage four lung cancer with the prognosis of living for six months. Mm. And he had been an extremely robust, energetic young man, uh, a wonderful guy uh, with lots of friends, uh, lots of interests, lots of talent. Mm. And so it was just a, a tremendous slap to see this guy who seemed to be so healthy, so well, stricken by a disease which was at that time 100% fatal. Hmm. Um, so you can imagine the impact that that had on me emotionally. Um, the thing that led to this book was that Rob had gotten really interested in art history when he was a college student at Yale. And indeed, he'd been able to get a very nice fellowship that took him to Cambridge University, where he was getting a PhD in art history. So he was very well trained in those subjects. But he came to the conclusion he didn't want to be an artist or simply an academic art historian. He wanted to be in a position where he could endow the arts and be a patron. So he decided to go into business. And he had a lot of courage and a lot of stuff. And so he decided one way to do this would be to learn Hungarian, which is a very difficult language for English-speaking people to understand. And so he went to Hungary, and he did just that. Uh, he enrolled in courses for English speakers to learn Hungarian, and they had a rule that whoever got the highest grade in a particular course didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> so he was able to get through quite a number of courses by having only paid once. And this meant that he became sufficiently fluent that when an international real estate company was interested in establishing a foothold in, in Hungary, he became one of their local managers and did very well, so they brought him back to this country, and uh, he was in a New York office at the time of his diagnosis. So he was really on his way up, and it was just a, a remarkable sense of tragedy for this uh, very smart, energetic, interesting young man to be stricken down at such an age. Um, of course, we've tried to think of what it was because um, cancer is normally a disease of older people. It's far more frequent with older people than with the young. And the only thing we've been able to trace down, and I think it probably is a factor, is that when we moved to Colorado, there was no information about radon or radon testing. And so we bought a house, uh, fixed it up, uh, made a room for Rob down in the basement where he helped to choose the colors of the wall. And he and I built closets for him to store all his stuff. He was about four at the time. And so you can imagine a, a dad and his son working away to make a nice place to live. And yet it turned out that this was in the basement. And subsequent to his death, when we looked into it, we found that the levels of radon down there were about five times the recommended level. And I think that's almost certainly a factor in his having acquired lung cancer at a young age. Huh, I am so sorry. Goodness, I just, um, it's every parent's worst nightmare. Um, 
Well, you want to do right by your kids and, and it, it, to, to realize that in your best efforts to give him a lovely room that he wanted, you wound up putting him in a place that probably jeopardized his health and led to his premature death. It's, it's a, not a nice feeling. No. Well, it, it sounds like that's such a, I mean, a beautiful story about Rob's um, desire to be impactful and to take his love for the arts to a way to fund the arts. And I love the story that you shared about him becoming fluent and Hungarian. And I'm wondering if if it's a decent analogy for what you hope would be the outcomes for students who, or anyone, any reader of this material is, do you hope that we become at least somewhat fluent in cancer so that we can use the lessons that you share to uh, not only increase our understanding, increase our empathy, but increase our ability to deal with this disease? Well, I think you've expressed it very well. I, I would have little to add, only the one point that the thing that really motivated me to write this book was that when he was dying, he had friends really from many parts of the world, from England where he'd been in graduate school, from Hungary, and these people came to his house just north of New York City, and all were visiting him, and all were completely flummoxed because they didn't understand anything about cancer or know how to think about this. And I, of course, tried to explain it to them, but I was I was incapable of doing it, partly because I was distracted, but but mostly because it takes some real thought to figure out how to express what needs to be known in order that people can understand it if they have no background. And so helping his friends to understand was the motivation that got me going with this book. What a beautiful motivation. And it, it truly is written in a way that is uh, the uptake is, I won't say easy because it's a it's a complex subject, but it is, um, you've certainly paved a, a path that anyone can follow to understand the complexities of this disease, to appreciate it, and uh, to know best how to move forward. So um, thank you well, for that. If I could just comment on one thing you said, it, I have tried, of course, to pave the way, but not into the complexities of cancer, because, for example, when I'm talking about oncogenes, which is a very important subject, those genes right. that emerge in our bodies as a result of mutation that drive cancer, I really deal in detail with only one. Sure. And I made that choice because it's so easy to get absolutely admired in the complexities of cancer. And so this book does not do that. In other words, right. you can't come to this book to try to get a real understanding, a full understanding of cancer. There's a wonderful book by um, Robert Weinberg, who's a great cancer scholar. Um, and if you want to understand cancer better, that's the book for you. But if you don't know any biology, that book would be impossible. Right. And so my book could be a stepping stone towards an understanding. I don't want to let you go without talking a little bit about some of the work that you've done. Um, you've had a really impressive career uh, in research at the University of Colorado, which you've alluded to a little bit. Let's let's kind of level set for our audience who is not um, doesn't have a deep vocabulary uh, potentially in biology. So let's maybe talk about your work in mitosis. So let's start off with what is mitosis. I think everybody knows that much of our body is made of cells and everybody also knows that we start life as a single fertilized egg which is one cell 
And in your body, there are trillions of cells, which means that one initial cell has to grow and divide, grow and divide, grow and divide again and again and again to make all the cells that will be needed to make your nerves and your muscles and all the tissues of your body. Every cell division includes two major steps. Step one is that the cell has to make enough materials that there is enough to go round when it divides so that each of the two daughter cells will have enough to live on. Part of that, and an essential part of it, is that the cell has in it a set of instructions for how to build molecules. These instructions are the DNA. And another way of saying it is, is the genes, which are stretches along DNA molecules. You have about 20,000 genes on DNA, which is maybe six feet long in a, in a human cell. And the problem is that when you're going to divide, you have to duplicate all that DNA so that there's a copy for each of the two cells. Once you've done that in a process which is called DNA replication, you now have the two sets, but it's like having a bowl of spaghetti because there are these long pieces of DNA that are all wound up with one another. And what you need to do is separate them so they'll be in two distinct pools. That process of separating DNA is called mitosis. And it gets its name from the Greek word for thread, which is what mitos means. And the reason for that is that the early microscopists, the Germans who were using the best microscopes available in the latter part of the 19th century, could use stains that colored the chromosomes. Their name, chromosome, actually comes from the fact that they pick up color from the dye, because chromo is, of course, color. And so the chromosomes become visible because this long strand of DNA that was made by the process of DNA replication coils up into 46 little objects, each of which is double. And in mitosis, what happens is that the cell builds a machine which is made out of fibers called microtubules, and those fibers attach to the chromosomes at a specific site, organize them so they all line up on a plane, and then pulls them apart so exactly one set of genes goes to each end of the cell. So now the cell pinches in the middle, there are going to be two cells, each of which has a complete set of genes. So this process of mitosis is fundamental to cell division. And of course, cell division is at the heart of cancer as well, because cancer emerges when cells divide at a time and in a place when they should not. And so attacking the process of either DNA replication or mitosis is a way in which doctors try to prevent the excessive growth in cancer. So Mitosis is not only important from a fundamental point of view to try to understand how the body can develop all the cells that it has and heal its wounds and so forth, but also it represents an entree into a process that you can attack as a physician trying to block the processes that are fundamental to cancer. And so I've been motivated to work on this process really all my professional life. I've now spent 50 years on mitosis and I've never been bored. <laughs> So I, I love the analogy of the plate of spaghetti because we that has to be divided. In this case, thinking about chromosomes that have to be divided exactly and precisely into two daughter cells. So if you had a big plate of spaghetti and two kids and you had to divide it exactly right or there was going to be a big fight, um, <laughs> I think we can all relate to that. So, and you said it often, it can, not often, but it can go awry any of these processes um, 
during the development of cancers. So can you, could you just give us one easy example of how mitosis just overall might differ in a normal cell versus a cancer cell? The principal difference is not in mitosis itself, but in the control of mitosis. That is, in a cancer cell, the process is occurring when it should not. Okay. And cells have many, many controls that prevent incorrect events. And it's those controls that get messed up during cancerous transformation. I can add one thing, though, is that there are many controls that keep mitosis as accurate as possible. Indeed, there probably is only about one mistake in 10 or 50,000 events uh, mm. in mitosis. I mean, if, if General Motors could do so well, we'd all be really pleased. <laughs> but um, those controls get lost in cancer cells. So mistakes are made more often. And therefore, a characteristic of solid cancers is that they contain many cells with a wrong number of chromosomes. Uh, that incorrect number means that they're now genetically unstable and they can continue to change fast. And that's one of the reasons that cancer is so difficult to treat is that the cells you're trying to prevent from growing and kill are changing all the time and they learn how to escape whatever it is you try to stop them with. So faulty mitosis is one of the mechanisms for that rapid change of cells during cancerous transformation. All right. So... I'd really love to hear a little bit more about your ACS funding. You've been funded for a long time, for a long time by the American Cancer Society. And maybe you could just share with us a little bit about how this funding has potentially impacted your career. Oh, I'd be glad to, because it really has been tremendously important to me. When I first moved to Colorado, I'd been an assistant professor at Harvard for a couple of years, but I really did not like that atmosphere. And I moved to Colorado because it looked like a wonderful place to work. Um, I needed an electron microscope, which is a pretty expensive instrument. And um, ACS gave me a quite uh, generous grant. And with it, I was able to buy a second-hand electron microscope that allowed me to use the power of that kind of microscopy to look at the structure of the machine that cells build in mitosis out of microtubules in order to move the chromosomes and try through those very high resolution images to understand how the microtubules moved during the course of the movement of the chromosomes. That funding was uh, really 10 years of work and um, it was very valuable for my, my scientific progress. We then moved on to trying to understand what were the kinds of motors that would bind to microtubules that might be pushing and pulling on the chromosomes. And ACS supported that work for another 10 years or so. And then uh, after that, I applied for and was granted a very nice grant called a, a research professorship, which gave some money that helped pay my salary. So I had a little more time for research and contributed money that I could do with as I wished. And, and what I did with that money was to buy a high powered infrared laser and with some Russian colleagues, build it into what's called a laser trap, which mm -hmm. is a device that images the laser beam down to a tiny point. And in that point of very bright infrared light, you can capture a little tiny transparent sphere. And we coated those spheres with things that would bind to microtubules. And with this laser trap, we were then able to measure the forces that microtubules can generate as they grow and shrink in a test tube. So ACS has really been a major part of my funding all my professional career, and I'm very grateful for it. 
Well, we're grateful for you and for all you've done. This is some fantastic insights um, to these structures and, and we look forward to more to come. Um, I think I have time for one more question and that's that uh, a significant portion of our listeners are either cancer patients or folks who love them. And I'd be really interested to hear from you from your experiences as a, a dad, a caregiver for someone who had cancer, um, certainly as a researcher who's been interested in some of these fundamental processes, and then as a professor who's now trying to, to help all of us, but especially your students, understand kind of the basics of cancer and, and how to um, think about cancer as they move throughout their lives. Is there uh, some information or just some perceptions, messages that you'd like to share with our cancer patients and their families? Uh, I think there's one thing I would really like um, to to say and to transmit to everybody, and, and this is the power of good scientific investigation. Um, progress is always slow and slower than you want, but it is amazing the way the knowledge that is accumulated through observation and reproducible experiment builds an, a framework on which you can really get an understanding of some aspect of nature. Um, one has to remember that life is very complicated. I mean, you could say, you know, well, we've gone to the moon. Why can't we solve cancer? People are often very impatient about that. But, you know, when you go to the moon, you build a rocket and a rocket is complicated, um, made of probably hundreds of thousands of parts. But you know what every part is because you put it in there. A cell is made of probably a million parts, and you don't know what they are. And further, a cell is tiny. They're so small that if you take a cluster of a million human cells, it's just about the size of a pinhead. So you're asking scientists to understand a process which is probably more complicated than a moon rocket, and so tiny it requires instrumentation to make observations, and then know enough about it that you can understand what happens when it misbehaves. <laughs> Science is going to do this, but uh, it isn't going to do it in a day. Um, it took thousands of years to understand germs bacteria and viruses, you know, those discoveries are late 19th century. And when you think of how long people were suffering from disease, I happen just to be reading a book about cholera now. And it's horrible to read what doctors were doing to treat cholera patients in the, 19th, the 1830s. It's just barbaric and it had nothing to do with improving their condition because they simply didn't understand. Basic science brings about the knowledge that allows doctors to do things that are actually beneficial. And occasionally you get spurts of progress, like the drugs that have recently come out that are interfering with the immune checkpoint function. And the impact of those on some melanoma patients is just extraordinary. It's wonderful. But most progress is slower than that. Um, people talk a lot about personalized medicine now and, and how that's going to revolutionize cancer. And I'm sure it will in some ways, but I worry because it's based on sequencing individual patients' DNA, and you have to sequence quite a lot because a tumor has many different kinds of cells in it, many mutations, and not all the cells in a given tumor are the same. And it's going to be slow and expensive to make that work. And I'm afraid that it's going to push towards having different levels of cancer care for the wealthy and the poor. And I find that a, a very sad aspect of American medicine. 
I think that our best bet is going to come from the scientific development of tests which are giving us early screening that can identify problems and help us learn to fix them before they get bad. That's where I think the science of cancer medicine is going in the long run. And that's where I would hold out hope. In other words, I can't say to someone who has cancer, hang on, science is going to find a cure and you won't die, because I'm afraid that's not a, a useful hope in many cases. But over time, it really is going to make a significant difference in how much of a problem cancer is to us as a population, even as we age, increasing our risk of cancer. I think that's a really lovely way to summarize. If I understood correctly, it sounded like what you were encouraging us to do is to appreciate, first of all, basic science, which is a process of observation and understanding. And then from that understanding, that drives more observation. And we repeat that over and over again. And so it takes time. And over time, we will see impact. And that impact will be some benefit um, as you suggested, tests to identify things that we can do to decrease our risk and hopefully have equity um, in all our populations. So it sounds like what you're asking for us to do is to have faith, have faith in the process and, um, and look forward to, to the things to come. You phrase it very well. It's really exactly right. And it's funny for a scientist telling people have faith. But I really, I, I have a deep faith in the power of reproducible observation, especially in these days when people are questioning science and uh, fake news is everywhere. To have a process that gives reliable information that you can trust because it, you know it's been done several times and if you do it again, you're going to get the same answer. That kind of reliability is the cornerstone of solid science. Well, we're going to let you get back to it. You've got um, you got a heavy load to carry, a lot on your shoulders. We're grateful for all you've done and all you continue to do, and, and we'll look forward to what's around the corner. Thank you. Good. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Bye-bye.